So look at verses 19 through 24. I'm going to read them real quickly uh, because I want our minds to really engage together, and then, and then we'll walk through it. Verse 19 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, there your treasure, there your, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here in verse 19, we see the first of three imperative commands. And I want you to, I want you to notice that. I'm going to walk you. My main points, good news, are found directly in the text. It should always be the case. So there are three imperative commands. These are not suggestions from Jesus. He is, he is giving us a command. If you are a follower of Christ, this is what he's asking you of us. And the first one is this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So a couple things I'll point out at first glance, right? These verses... 19 through 21 particularly, provide a really nice conclusion to the first 18 verses. Namely, that this greater or this inner righteousness is a matter of the heart. It's, it's the matter of, of the inner person. It, it's not an outer righteousness of verse 1 or a hypocritical prayer life of verse 5 through 7 or a purposefully disfigured fast to gain the praise of man in verse 16. Instead, it is a life that is a heart set on the treasures of heaven. A life that is full of faith in Lord's provision. A life that seeks first Christ and his kingdom, right? Secondly, we see a little wordplay here, and I want you to, to pay attention here. If you're taking notes, cool. If not, no worries. Uh, but this is really lost in the English translation. So we're going to walk through the chiastic tr structure of it. I'm just kidding. Um, but I will say this. In the original language, there's, there's a wordplay here that I think is purposeful and worth pointing out. The same word for destroy or disfigure in verse 19 and in verse 20 is the same word used for the disfigured faces of the Pharisees in verse 16. Why do I point this out? I'm glad you asked. In other words, the disfigurement of their faces and the disfigurement or the destruction of our earthly treasures will never, ever happen to heavenly treasures. It just won't. Jesus is walking through a, a little wordplay. So here's the question we have to ask. What is the overall point of verse 6, right? Okay, we can read it. We can understand. We can talk about it. But what, what, is he, what is he trying to say? I think a really great way to summarize our takeaway is this, and you should see it on the slide. We must have an uncompromising loyalty to Christ and his kingdom. In fact, as we walk through these verses, Jesus gives us three metaphors to help us be pushed towards this. The first is treasure. The second is light or vision, and the third is slavery or bondage. So let's walk through it. Number one, treasures. We see Jesus first telling us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. What does this mean? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to understand what he means. Was he condemning all wealth? Is he, is he telling you that you shouldn't save for the future or that you, didn't, you shouldn't put a 529 in place for your college fund for the kids or you shouldn't be wise with your money and think about tomorrow necessarily and how you relate to finances? Is that, is that what he's saying? No, not at all. In fact, the Bible tells the exact opposite in many places. It encourages us to be wise savers and to provide for our own, right? Additionally, Paul would continue later in the New Testament to say 
Don't be like the ascetics. Enjoy good things, right, in a balanced capacity. Jesus certainly gives warning to the rich, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the word used here for treasures is an inclusive term in the Greek, meaning it includes many things. It certainly refers to money, but it is not confined to money, okay? So, so if he's not saying, I'm condemning all wealth, what is he saying? I think a great way to start is to understand what treasure is. So a, a very basic, simplistic definition of what I think Jesus means by treasure is something that, that carries value that will perish or will be lost, right? I heard a man once say, you don't see a U-Haul in the back of a hearse, right? You can't take it with you from this life to the next. It's something that you know will age and perish and pass away. Um, and, and honestly, we often are tempted to put our worth in that, right? So we could, we could treasure many things like this, right? Our home or our children or our job or our money or our status or our car. Jesus is not telling you you can't have these things. He's not telling you not to, not to have concern for these things. But he is prohibiting the ultimate love of these things. For instance, money is not sinful. But what does 1 Timothy say? The love of, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10. Here's a great way to summarize it. If anything in this world is everything to you, that's what Jesus is talking about. By the way, this is not only a matter of perspective, uh, and, and it's also a matter of wisdom, right? So we can talk about the theological pieces of this, but, but just wisdom tells you that it would be foolish to love such treasures because they're going to pass away, right? So instead, what does Jesus do? He provides an alternate way. Remember, this is not a suggestion. He gives us a very clear command. What does he tell us to do? He says in verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, Jesus, what does that mean? That, that's, that's kind of ideal. I, I'm not quite sure I really understand how to apply that to my life. Great. Let's, let's walk through it, right? This is a call to a right orientation of your affections. It, it's as if he's asking this question indirectly what what makes you satisfied is, is what satisfies me and you on a daily basis things of the heavenly realm things of eternal nature or is it or is it something else things of divine approval should be our treasure and should ultimately result in the glory of christ as, as i studied through this this week I, I could hear the echoes of the preacher in ecclesiastes in fact we're referred to Solomon in just a few minutes, right? But, but I hear this echo of the vanity, the, the transientness of stuff, right? All of the things that are transient must not own the front seat of our heart. For if they do, we are destined for calamity, right? The great Jonathan Edwards reminds us in his work, Religious Affections, and there's, there's a lot on this slide. If you want to take a picture, that's fine. Um, but if, if, if we had enough time to unpack it, we could spend many, many hours walking through everything Jonathan Edwards wrote. But, but he, he wrote a really helpful work. It's called Religious Affections. And in that, he says, true religion in great part consists of holy affections. He understood that the soul had two faculties. You'll see it, the understanding and the inclination or the will, right? The understanding is that by which the soul perceives, speculates, discerns, views, judges things, right? The inclination of the will is that by which the soul is inclined or disinclined to things. Pleased or displeased. Approves or rejects. Edwards would say that the affections have to do with the second faculty. He says, 
they are the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and the will of the soul. In fact, McDermott would further comment that our affections are strong inclinations of the soul that are manifested in our thinking and our feeling and our acting and that the affections are more than just emotions, right? So you're sitting there thinking, okay, Chris, this is super deep and uh, you know, I've heard that dude's name before, but I, 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 I don't want to get caught up in all the ethereal. Here's the summary, right? Our affections affect everything we do. What you love is what you pursue. What you love is what your checking account will point to, by the way, many, many times. It affects everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, right? And I believe that this is what Jesus is getting at. We must not store up for ourselves fleeting earthly treasures that become our everything and that often avert the eye of our soul. Instead, we must ensure that our affections are set on heavenly treasures. Colossians 3.2, set your affections on things that are above, not on things of this earth. And then he finishes with this really simple axiom in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This, this further communicates his point. Uh, another way to say it is this. If then your treasure is on earth, your heart will follow and the outcome will be devastating. But if your treasures are found in heaven, your heart's affections will follow, resulting in a right orientation of life. Remember, full circle, it's this inner man, this inner righteousness. It's not the outward adornment, but it's what's inside that then changes what you see outside. Kent Hughes helps us with a few comments and questions. I will actually give you this on a slide at the end if you're interested, um, but but he, he, he kind of walks us through this idea that this is a, a gracious mirror that Jesus provides for us, for us to see where our heart really is. It, it's, it's, a natural, it, it's, it's a natural and right thing for, for our vocation and our education and our home, for instance, to occupy a large place of our thoughts. That, that's not unnatural. But what Christ does is he warns against a total earthbound absorption with them. So, so he kind of walks us through a few questions. And here's, here's the five questions. that, Like I said, I'll zip through them quick, and then I'll show you at the end of the application. But he says, number one, what occupies your thoughts when you have nothing else to do? What occupies your daydreams? Is it your investments or your position or your education? If so, these are the things where you treasure. Secondly, similarly, what is it that you fret about most? What, what causes you the most angst? Is it, is it your home or your clothing? Is it your grades? Is it your position or status amongst your friends? If so, then you know where your treasure lies. Thirdly, apart from your loved ones, what or whom do you most dread losing? Fourthly, what are the things that we measure others by? I thought that was, this was really interesting. What are the things we measure other by, others by? This question is a very revealing mirror because we measure other people by what we treasure. Do you measure others by their clothing or by their education or their car or their homes or their skin color? Lastly, what is it that you cannot be happy without? These questions are really helpful for us as we walk through the application of determining where treasure lies. Then, then look, look at the next few verses. He moves into the second and third metaphors that even further illustrate 
his call for us to have what D.A. Carson would call a singular devotion to Christ. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in if, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So these two metaphors he moves, he moves from treasure to light vision and then bondage or slavery. And, and honestly, if you're, if you're looking at this in context, in fact, as I really looked into it, studying through it this week, that may seem a little out of place. It's like treasure, and now what, what, what does the eye have to do with this, right? And, and then I can see how the end with serving money applies, but it, it just kind of almost seems a little out of place. But I can assure you they're not. In fact, this section is very, very rich with metaphor and play on words. And, and honestly, it's very difficult to translate it into English. So once again, going back to the original language, I want you to look at the flow first, and then I'll walk you through something that's very interesting. Uh, you've got this contrast going on. Verse 19, heaven versus earth. 23, 22 through 23, you've got this idea of light versus dark. And then verses 24, God versus money. It's a cadence, a purposeful cadence of contrast. And so no, no doubt, the condition of the eye determines the quality of light that enters in. If your eye is bad, no light. If your eye is good, much light. So this is absolutely related to the light that comes into the soul, right? It affects us. There's some applications we can draw there. Additionally, in regards to serving God or money, the point here is not to literally communicate to you that you will hate money or hate God. I, I think it's deeper than that. I think more importantly... It's asking or, or, or basically digging in to say what our hearts or our affections or our souls are devoted to will ultimately gain our allegiance. When, when pressed into the vice of life, what you treasure will gain your allegiance, will gain your preference, will gain your attention, will gain your mind time, will often gain your money and by default have control over you. Jesus is saying, don't let anything this side of heaven have that kind of control over your heart, mind, and life. And then he works through this idea of, of what, what are we in, in, in bondage to or a slave to. But I want to point something out that I think um, is an important point, and, and it's really unique as I work through a lot of this this week. The word translated for clear or healthy uh, was often used to mean generous in the Old Testament, there in verse 22. Likewise, the phrase bad or evil eye was regularly referred to as an ungenerous spirit in the Jewish tradition, there in verse 23. So, if clear references generous and bad references ungenerous, then we can more clearly understand the direction of Jesus' point, right? And, and you might be sitting there thinking, okay, Chris, that, that sounds a little outstretched, you know, out, out there, right? L let me further substantiate it. By, by the bookends of the passage, it starts with treasure, right? It ends with money. So in the middle, these metaphors fit perfectly, and it drives home Jesus' point. If you treasure anything over Christ, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. So as Christians, we've got to pay attention to this. We just have to. 
Now, I want to camp out on verse 24 for a minute. This is, this is the part that a lot of people, I think, uh, want, want to overlook because it, it gets a little uncomfortable talking about money. Good. If I see you squirming a little bit, I know I'm, I'm doing something right here. Um, but, but I say all that to say this, all jokes aside, I want to camp on verse 24 because how we relate to money is a huge deal to Jesus, an absolute huge deal to Jesus. And, I, and I'll give you some reasons why. But, but I, I stated earlier that although this warning and call of obedience isn't confined to money, it absolutely includes it. And I believe that Jesus is purposefully highlighting money as it relates to our affection. So why is this? Simply put, the love of money and greed is an insatiable and selfish desire that will consume you if not careful. In fact, uh, John D. Rockefeller at one point was asked, how much money is enough? And his response was simple, just a little bit more. In fact, as you grow older and get a job and have a family and make more money, as your income rises, expenses fill the gap. They just do. What does this, what does this say about the orientation of our hearts? Sometimes, sometimes this consumption is, is a little more easy to spot, and, and maybe we're more willing to spot it. In someone's life, when, when their entire life is ruined because they pursued greed, right? You maybe have seen that show, American Greed. Sometimes I find it rather fascinating to see what these people had, and they just gave it all away. So, so a lot of times it's easier or we're more willing to look at, at examples of that. But, but let, me, let me dig in just a little bit, because sometimes it's less noticeable and are willingly admitted in our own lives personally related to how we give to the church or how we live generously or how we live in regards to what we spend our money on. It's a, it's a huge deal to Jesus. In fact, there's a little book on the back table. There's a couple copies. If you need more, we'll get more uh, with a suggested donation. But Randy Alcorn writes in his book, The Treasure Principle, which, by the way, you can't tell me you don't have time to read it because it's only 84 pages and it's incredible. So you should get it and read it and it'll be great. But that said, Alcorn says this in his little 84-page book that 15% of everything that Jesus rela- says relates to money and possessions. 15%. That's more than his teaching on heaven and hell combined. It's important to our Lord. According to the nonprofit source, which seems to be a pretty reputable source, in 2018, the average weekly giving in Protestant churches was $17. 37% of regular church attendees and evangelicals don't give money to the church. Christians, now broad term, in 2018, are giving about 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. Tithers, or those that give to the church, make up about 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. And we've seen this proven over and over, right? Once again, I'm not, here to, I'm not here to lambast you because what I don't want you to do as one of your pastors, I don't want you to give out of guilt. Jesus doesn't want you to give out of guilt. You'll hear me say it a million times. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills too. He doesn't need your money. It's his money, by the way. And if he doesn't want you to have it, you're not going to have it. God asks for a cheerful giver. He wants someone that is free from the love of money and possessions that will generously give so that the kingdom of God would be advanced and so that your heart is not controlled by anything other than Christ and your relationship to him. Let me make this more specific to our context. I told Michael I'd do this so I got his blessing. If we had, and and this is just how I think, right, because it's kind of part of my job, If we had 40 giving units, 
which I would define as a single and or a, a family, that gave an average of $350 to $400 a month, which, by the way, is 10% of about a you know, forty-two dollars to $50,000 income. I know some of you college students are like, whoa, that's a lot of money. I get it. I was in college once too. But for a family especially, that's not an, an incredible amount of money, especially if you live in Ann Arbor. Like, it just is what it is. If, if we had that type of giving, I could literally call all of our partners Monday morning happily, all of our external partners that are giving to us, and say, you know what, I want to help you find a new church plant to support. Because we would have enough money to pay all of our building fund fees, our power bill, anything we need to purchase, resources, pay Michael's salary, bring on a new staff member, and then look for things to continue to support financially in addition to the ones we're already doing. I'm not going to work through a full theology of giving. That's, that's not what I want to do. We're, we're not going to do that this morning. However, right in line with Jesus' warning not to serve money, we as Christians must be willing to take inventory where our souls lie in regards to our relationship with money. As I've said, a love for it, it does something to us. We cannot serve God in money, but we must serve God and bring money into subjection to him. Serve God, bring money into subjection. I mean, let's just be honest. Brandy reminded us, Christ gave his greatest service. I mean, how many of you in this room would be willing to give the life of your earthly son for my sake? Yet Christ gave his most prized possession on behalf of those that he knew on the cross would continually sin against him and choose other things over him. That's what he asks of us. So, by the way, this passage is not just a warning to the rich only, which we could break this down and say that everyone in America is rich. But if you look at America in general, it's not just a warning to the rich. It's also to those with little. Why? Because the service of and love for money can still exist and control your soul when you have nothing. It's the root, right? It's what controls you. Moving to the next section, and I want to zip through these quickly because our time is waning. Uh, the, the second and third imperative commands, look at verse 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food or the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of the lilies. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that don't know Christ in this context, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So second imperative command, do not be anxious about your life. 
We just finished the section where Jesus warns against materialism and, and treasuring anything over him. And we are quickly brought to this topic that in our experience, let's be honest, is often coupled with materialism. If you're controlled by materialism and money, how often do you find yourself anxious? One writer calls this a twin malady to treasuring anything over Christ. Jesus knew that a focus on treasure on this earth always leads to anxiety, whether you have much or a little. The word worry or anxiety is purposely mentioned three times. You'll see it in this passage, and it's meant to drive home a point. In fact, I found um, one of the things I was reading, Time Magazine in 1961 commented that anxiety is the universal disease of our time or our age. And they further comment, and I think it's on a slide, not merely the black statistics of murder, suicide, alcoholism, and divorce betray anxiety, but almost any innocent everyday act, the limp or the overhearty handshake, which don't do that to me, <clears throat> the second pack of cigarettes or the third martini, the forgotten appointment, the stammer in mid-sentence, the wasted hour before the TV set, the spanked child, the new car unpaid for. You see, anxiety is not a recent malady. It's one that spans the ages and honestly, by many experts, is seemingly getting worse. So let me pivot just for a moment, okay? And I want to make a couple qualifying statements to you because I think they're important. Number one, this morning, I am not going to walk through an in-depth discussion about professionally diagnosed anxiety. Number one, I'm not a professional in that area. Number two, I think it's sufficient to say this. I believe there to be cases of this sort of anxiety and that oftentimes medical intervention is helpful and sometimes necessary, okay? We, we can discuss this further individually if you'd like, but, but I want you to hear me say that. that that's not what, what we're going to talk about this morning. Secondly, I do, however, believe that Jesus and his spirit are more than capable to heal any of us from any infirmity, including anxiety, according to his power and his perfect will. Now, let's take a deep breath. That being said, I think it's of importance to define what Jesus means by anxiety. Michael and I met Friday morning, and we walked through this quite in-depthly, because what does he mean? Is, is, is he telling you and me that, that that twinge of anxiety that creeps up when we know a bill is due and we're a bit short, or or the, the email that the boss says, hey, I want to talk to you tomorrow, let's set up a meeting time, or, or when you can't find your child at the store because they're hiding in the clothes, which was super fun when I was little, but I'm freaking out when they don't do it. Is, is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. In fact, it is a known understanding that some concern is good. Many writers point out a few of these things. No great preacher unveils God's word without some level of apprehension. No great athlete performs well without some level of anxiety. No great pianist performs well without some sort of worry, right? However, I, I do think some distinction is, is helpful here. For instance, in the example of the preacher, if his concern is rooted in a desire to be faithful to the text and to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, concern is good, right? But if his concern is rooted in a desire to please man, not good, okay? So there's a little caveat. But, but if Jesus isn't talking about that little twinge that, that uprises in your mind in normal everyday experiences of life, what, what does he mean? What, what does he mean when he says anxiety in this, in this context? Here's what I think he means. I think he's referring to the type of worry and anxiety that monopolizes your heart. 
It monopolizes your soul. It monopolizes your mind. It's this self-centered, striving, self-reliant worry that lacks faith in God. We'll tease through this in just a second because he brings about the idea of faith. Further, I think it's important to think through when we do experience that, that natural twinge of anxiety, what do we do with it? How do we respond? I mean, just ask me any day of the week the, the ways that I can respond that are sinful, right? I can respond in fear, in, in frozen passivity, in anger, in unwise choices that just heap on more anxiety, right? In each of us, these examples they're, they're sinful, but Jesus warns against these things, and he carries us to, to a deep-rooted issue. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And what does he say there at the end? Oh, ye of little faith. Wait a minute. What, what do you, what do you th- why, do you bring, why do you bring faith into this, Lord? I don't understand. We're talking about some external things, right? I'm kind of tracking with you, but now we're talking about faith. I believe he does this because the root of anxiety that he's referring to is a faith issue. And, and, and I'm going to further bring that home in just a second at the end of the passage. But, but I want to contrast a shallow and a deep faith, if you'll let me just for a minute, right? A, a, a shallow faith in Christ versus a deep faith in Christ. So a shallow faith is, is anxious striving, prideful self-reliance, an unrest that is unsatiable. Unwise choices, anger, fear, great potential for additional vices. How many people have you seen, or maybe yourself, have seen other vices rise up in your life because you're anxious? Let's contrast that with a deep faith in Christ. Rest amidst difficult circumstances and trials. Deep recognition and reliance on Christ for everything. Humility, discerning choices, slow to speak and quick to listen, prayerfulness, crying out for the Lord's help, pressing into Christ for his strength, the fruit of the Spirit. That's why James says, in fact, in James 1, he says, take joy in your sufferings. By the way, that's not a suggestion. And you may read it and say, what are you talking about, James? You're crazy. I'm suffering. I don't want to take joy in that. But what he's telling us there is, if you rest in Christ If you are totally satisfied in Jesus and in him alone, no matter what happens externally, it will not monopolize your heart and your life. In short, if our faith is little, we will respond much like the world or the Gentiles that has no hope outside of themselves, wandering to and fro and controlled by the worries, riches, and pleasures of the world. So so how do we battle this? That's the real question, right? So we've talked through treasurings things of this, this earth, and we've talked through this idea of anxiety because they're often coupled together. And, and so it's like, okay, great, Chris, you, you've walked through this. I, I kind of understand it. You're talking a little fast. You're saying a whole lot. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable maybe because there's some areas in my life that, that the Lord is revealing to me that I might need to let him change. Great, good. I'm in, in the same place with you, by the way. Um, but, but how do we do this? What, what do we do with this anxiety? Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the third and final imperative command, by the way. It's not a suggestion. It not only answers the question I just posed, but it also gives us the summary alternative way 
that will ensure that we do not lay up for ourselves treasures on this earth and allow anxiety to rule our life. Another way to say this is, if you seek first the kingdom of God, you will not treasure anything this side of heaven, and you will not be monopolized by anxiety. So, okay, we must seek first the kingdom of God, but how do we do it? Let me give you some helpful thoughts. Matthew 5, 6, Michael walked us through this a few weeks ago. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, seeking that inner righteousness that's not externally adorned. Ken Hughes, once again, says that this is a call to a radical poverty of spirit. Radical poverty of spirit, seeking the Lord for all things and recognizing that without him, you are lost. This is a lifestyle that recognizes and demonstrates the need for the Lord to lead our way in all things in a pursuit of the mission of God that is before us, a commitment to that. John Stott says that this means that our supreme ambition should be the glory of the Father and neither our own glory nor even our own material well-being is a question, and this is super helpful, it is a question of what what do you seek first? What, what do I seek first? What is that knee-jerk reaction when pressed into the vice that I seek? It's pretty telling. It's a call to trust God for all things, to put him supreme and trust him for all practical areas, even if his provision is keeping us back from some things we may want. Maybe you really wanted that promotion, but he didn't give it to you. You're not always going to know why, but trust, trust that he's good and he loves you and he wants what's best for you. D.A. Carson says that this is the heart of the matter. But don't miss that it's a pledge or a commitment from God himself. This is really cool, I think, and it can be easily missed. So our part, as we've seen, is avoid consuming, worry even over the essentials of life and to pursue the kingdom. But there, there, there are, uh, the, the word seek, by the way, is, is, is this, um, in the Greek, it's, it's an imperative, present imperative, which it suggests this like unceasing pursuit, by the way. So it's a continual pursuit, on and on and on. But D.A. Carson points out three limitations. So Christ is making a commitment to us, but there are three limitations that we must understand. Number one, the promise that he makes here is to the children of God. This is not to all men indiscriminately. This is made clear by the contrast between Jesus' disciples and pagans in verse 631, as well as by the condition in 633. A itself, right, seek first the kingdom of God. So in other words, the way to walk through that is if you love the Lord and you don't put your hope in earthly treasures and you are not caught up in anxiety that monopolizes your life and you're seeking first the kingdom of God, there's the condition. It's going to happen, right? It's this if you love then. Secondly, Jesus promises that necessities will be provided in this context. He specifically mentions food, drink, and clothes. By the way, if you look back at the Lord's Prayer, you see that. You see that in the Lord's Prayer. So he commits to providing the necessities. By the way, not the luxuries. Many Christians in the West would think it very hard indeed if we had to live at a subsistence level, right? For we have long since come to take as necessities things which others would assume or say are luxuries. 
God in his lavish mercy, as we see in our life every day, often gives us more than the essentials. But here he pledges himself only to the latter, only to the necessities. Thirdly, I think the major exception to this pledge occurs when Christians are suffering for righteousness sake. By the way, back on the Beatitudes, some are martyred by starvation and by exposure. The overwhelming importance of the kingdom may require self-sacrifice, whether financially or physically, even to this ultimate degree. He continues on to say that the goal then is always the kingdom of God. For the Christian, for disciples of Jesus, there is no other. The logic entailed by this simple fact orients his thinking to kingdom values, abolishes worry over merely simple things, a worry which compromises his trust in the Heavenly Father. So this kind of brings us to the end of ourselves in good news to the end of today. The call not to treasure things of earth and avoid anxiety and to seek the kingdom seems almost insurmountable, right? Because there's, there's so much distraction around us and, and our hearts are so in love with so many things that, that are not Christ. Coming full circle, and I mentioned this initially, this is the point of the Sermon of the Mount, or at least one of them. So that we are left in a desperate state, yet we are filled with joy because we are offered a relationship with Christ, which then becomes our reliance. Although most of this section has been very theological, it's kind of this theological framework, I want to close with this last point. Um, he, he, he gives the, a, a very theological framework, but then finishes with, like, almost as if he's saying, because we're human, there will be an unavoidable worry for today after all, right? But let's limit it to the concerns of today. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow. Our gracious God intends for us to, to take it one step at a time and be responsible for today. Look what he says there in verse 34. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. It's like, it's like dear children, I, I know you're going to fight this, but don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So in conclusion, our call is very clear, right? We mustn't lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We mustn't be anxious about our life, and we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 